As you can see, there is a nature to the beast that we are stalking. Warren has discovered that the excellent business has certain other characteristics that help identify it. I have found that it's easier to break this part of the analysis into a series of questions. Warren uses a similar line of questioning when he's trying to determine the presence of the consumer monopoly, exceptional business economics, and shareholder-oriented management. Let's walk through the questions. There are nine of them. Number one, does the business have an identifiable consumer monopoly? It will be either a brand name product or a key service that people or businesses are dependent upon. Products are much easier to identify than services. For services, key places to look are in the field of advertising, television networks and advertising agencies, and the financial service providers such as credit card companies. But just because the business has a brand name product working in its favor does not mean that it is an excellent business. There are dozens of ways for management to fail to maximize the magic of a consumer monopoly. So after the product or service hits you in the face, you must begin an analysis of the company and its management. A great product is where you start, but a great product doesn't necessarily mean a great company. Number two, are the earnings of the company strong and showing an upward trend? A consumer monopoly is a great thing, but management may have done such a poor job running the rest of the company that annual per-share earnings fluctuate wildly. Warren is looking for annual per-share earnings that are strong and show an upward trend. Question number three. Is the company conservatively financed? If a company has a great consumer monopoly, then more than likely it is spinning off tons of cash and is in no need of a long-term debt burden. Warren favorites like Wrigley, UST, and International Flavor and Fragrances have little or no long-term debt. Warren star performers like Coca-Cola and Gillette both carry long-term debt of less than one times current net earnings. Sometimes an excellent business with a consumer monopoly will add a large amount of debt to finance the acquisition of another business, such as when Capital Cities more than doubled its long-term debt burden to acquire the ABC television and radio networks. In a case like this, you have to figure out if the acquisition is also a consumer monopoly, which it was in this case. But if it isn't, watch out. When two consumer monopolies go to the altar, it will more than likely be a fantastic marriage. With two consumer monopolies spinning off lots of excess profits, it doesn't take long for even mountains of debt to be reduced to molehills. But when a consumer monopoly marries a commodity-type business, there is usually a mediocre result. This is because the commodity-type business will suck off the profits of the consumer monopoly business to support its poor economics, leaving little to pay down the newly acquired debt. The exception to this is when the management of a commodity-type company uses the company's cash flow to acquire a consumer monopoly-type business, and then after the marriage, the management jettisons the cash-hungry commodity-type business. 
When a commodity-type business marries another commodity-type business, the result is usually a disaster. This is because neither can produce sufficient profits to climb out of debt. When looking for an excellent business, look for companies that possess a consumer monopoly and are conservatively financed. If the company with a consumer monopoly is using large amounts of long-term debt, it should be only to acquire another company with a consumer monopoly. Here's the fourth question Warren would ask in evaluating a company. Does the business consistently earn a high rate of return on shareholders' equity? Warren has figured out that high returns on shareholders' equity can produce great wealth for shareholders. Therefore, Warren is seeking to invest in companies that consistently earn high returns. To fully understand why Warren is so interested in high returns on shareholders' equity, let's work through the following. Shareholders' equity is defined as a company's total assets less the company's total liabilities. It's like the equity in your house. Let's say you bought a house as a rental property and you paid $200,000 for it. To close the deal, you invested $50,000 of your own money and you borrowed $150,000 from the bank. The $50,000 you invested in the house is your equity in the property. When you rent your house out, the amount of money that you earn from the rent after paying your expenses, mortgage, and taxes would be your return on equity. If you rented your house out for $15,000 a year and had $10,000 in total expenditures, then you would be earning $5,000 a year on your $50,000 in equity. Then the return on your $50,000 in equity would be the $5,000 you earned. This equates to a 10% return on equity. Likewise, if you owned a business and it had $10 million in assets and $4 million in liabilities, the business would have a shareholder's equity of $6 million. If the company earned, after taxes, around $2 million, we could calculate the business's return on shareholder's equity as approximately 33%. This means that the $6 million of shareholders' equity is earning a 33% rate of return. As I mentioned, the average return on shareholders' equity for an American corporation over the last 40 years has been approximately 12%. What Warren is looking for in a business is consistently higher than average returns on equity. We're not talking about 12 or 13%, but as we know, a rate of return of 15% and above. The higher, the better. Let's look at some of the companies that have caught Warren's interest in the past and see what kind of return on equity they were getting. The General Foods Corporation was averaging an annual 16% return on equity during the time Warren was buying it. Coca-Cola's return on equity the year he started buying it was approximately 33% and it had a 25% average annual return on equity for the preceding five years. Hershey Foods has long fascinated Warren. It has had an average annual return on equity for the last 10 years of 16.7%.
A company like Philip Morris, the tobacco and food conglomerate, has had an average annual return on equity for the last 10 years of 30.5%. Capital Cities had a return on equity of 18% when Warren took his present position, a position he swapped in 1995 for a billion in cash and a big chunk of the ownership of Mickey Mouse, the Walt Disney Company. Service Master's return on equity was in excess of 40%, and USTs in excess of 30%. Gannett Corporation, one of his more recent acquisitions, had a return on equity of 25%. Warren believes that a consistently high return on equity is a good indication that a company's management not only can make money from the existing business, but also can profitably employ retained earnings to make more money for the shareholders. Consistently means consistently. Warren is not after a company that occasionally has high returns, but one that consistently has high returns. Warren also asks, does the business get to retain its earnings? In the 1934 edition of Security Analysis, Benjamin Graham introduces his readers to Edgar Lawrence Smith, who in 1924 wrote a book on investing entitled common stocks as long-term investments. Smith put forth the idea that common stocks could in theory grow in value as long as they earn more than they pay out in dividends, with the retained earnings adding to the company's net worth. In a representative case, a business would earn a 12% return on equity, pay out 8% in dividends, and retain 4% to surplus. If it did this every year, the stock value should increase with its book value at a rate of 4% compounded annually. Graham, however, warns us that not all companies can reinvest their surplus earnings in expansion of their business enterprises. Most, in fact, must spend their retained earnings on simply maintaining the status quo through the replenishment of expiring plants and equipment. Predicting future earnings of any enterprise can be extremely difficult and can vary greatly. This means that making a future prediction of earnings can be fraught with potential disaster. Warren concluded that Graham's doubts were correct for a great majority of businesses. However, he found that under close analysis, some companies were an exception to the rule. Warren found that these exceptions over a long period of time were able to profitably employ retained earnings at rates of return considerably above the average. In short, Warren found a few businesses that didn't need to spend their retained earnings upgrading plant and equipment or on new product development, but could spend their earnings either on acquiring new businesses or expanding the operations of their already profitable core enterprises. We want to invest in businesses that can retain their earnings and haven't committed themselves to paying out a high percentage of their profits as dividends. This way, the shareholders can benefit from the full effects of compounding, which is the secret to getting really rich. Next, Warren would ask, how much does the business have to spend on maintaining current operations? As we said, making money is one thing, Retaining it is another, and not having to spend it on maintaining current operations is still another.
Warren found that in order for Smith's theory to work, he had to invest in companies that one made money, two could retain it, and three didn't have to spend those retained earnings on maintaining current operations. Warren discovered that the capital requirements of a business may be so demanding that the company ends up having little or no money left to increase the fortunes of its shareholders. Let me give you an example. If a business makes one million a year and retains every cent, but every other year has to spend two million replacing plant and equipment that were expended in production, the company really isn't making any money at all. The business is only breaking even. The perfect business to warn would be one that earns two million and spends zero on replacing plant and equipment. Warren used to teach this lesson when he conducted a night class on investing at the University of Nebraska at Omaha Business School. He would lecture on the capital requirements of a company and the effect that it had on shareholder fortunes. He would do this by showing his students the past operating records of AT&T and of Thomson Publishing. Warren would demonstrate that AT&T, before it was broken up, was a poor investment for shareholders because though it made lots of money, it had to plow even more money than it had made into capital requirements, research and development and infrastructure. The way that AT&T financed the expansion was to issue more shares and to sell lots of debt. But a company like Thomson Publishing, which owned a bunch of newspapers in one newspaper towns, made lots of money for its shareholders. This was because once a newspaper had built its printing infrastructure, it had little in the way of capital needs to suck away the shareholders' money. This meant that there was lots of cash to spend on buying more newspapers to make its shareholders richer. Here's the seventh question Warren would ask. Is the company free to reinvest retained earnings in new business opportunities, expansion of operations, or share repurchases? How good a job does management do at this? Warren believes that if a company can employ its retained earnings at above average rates of return, then it is better to keep those earnings in the business. He has stated many times that he is not at all unhappy when Berkshire's wholly owned businesses retain all of their earnings, as long as they can utilize internally those funds at above average rates of return. Be aware that if a company has low capital requirements, but no prospects for capital employment that would bring a high rate of return, or if the management has a history of investing retained earnings into projects of low profitability, then Warren believes that the most attractive option for capital employment would be to pay out the earnings via a dividend or use them to repurchase shares. When retained earnings are used to buy back shares, the company is, in effect, buying its own property and increasing future per-share earnings of the owners who didn't sell. Think of it this way. If you have a partnership and there are three partners, you each, in effect, own one-third of the partnership. If the partnership, using partnership funds, buys one of the partners out, then the two remaining partners would each own 50% of the company and split the partnership's future earnings 
Share repurchases cause per share earnings to increase, which results in an increase in the market price of the stock, which means richer shareholders. Whether or not the management of the company can utilize its retained earnings is probably the single most important question you must ask yourself as a long-term investor in businesses. Commitment of capital to a company that has neither the opportunity nor the managerial talent to grow its retained earnings will cause your investment boat to become dead in the water. Number eight on the list of Warren's questions. Is the company free to adjust prices to inflation? With a commodity-type business, it is possible to have the cost of production increase with inflation, while the prices the business can charge for its products decreases because of competition. This situation occurs periodically in the airline business. Airlines commit themselves to all kinds of heavy fixed costs, from airplanes to fuel, to union contracts for pilots, ground crews, mechanics, and attendants, all cost lots of money, and they all increase in cost with inflation. But along comes a price war, and the airlines have to start cutting ticket prices to stay competitive. Want to fly from New York to Los Angeles? There are half a dozen or more airlines competing for your business. If one drops prices significantly, they all end up losing. In the 1960s, a round-trip airplane ticket from Omaha, Nebraska, to Paris cost a thousand dollars or more. Recently, I bought one for five hundred dollars. Even though the cost of airplanes, fuel, pilots, ground crews, mechanics, and those terrible airline meals had more than quadrupled in the last thirty years, my ticket, thanks to a price war, got cheaper. But the airline that sold it to me didn't get any richer. Now you know why so many airlines go under. To warn, the excellent business consumer monopoly is one that is free to increase the prices of its products right along with inflation, without it experiencing a decline in demand. That way, its profits remain fat, no matter how inflated the economy gets. Here's Warren's ninth and final question: Will the value added by retained earnings increase the market value of the company? Warren's answer is yes. He believes that the long-term investment nature of the market will continually ratchet up the price of a company's stock if it can properly allocate capital and keep adding to the company's net worth. A perfect example of this is his own Berkshire Hathaway, which in 1981 had a net worth of $527 a share and was trading at around $525. Sixteen years later, in 1997, it has a net worth of approximately $20,000 a share and is trading in the neighborhood of $45,000 a share. Warren expanded the company by allocating the company's retained earnings to the purchase of whole and partial interest in businesses that have exceptional economics. As the net worth of the company grew, so did the market's valuation of the company, thus the rise in the price of the stock.
Warren is always on the lookout for a company that has a stock price responding to a real increase in the economic value of the company. He is not looking for a company that has a stock price that is increasing because of speculative pressure. One is a sure thing, the other is a bet at the racetrack. To summarize, Warren is looking to invest in the business that has excellent economics working in its favor, which produces monopoly-like profits. He has found that these excellent businesses usually have some kind of consumer monopoly, usually a brand name product or a service that consumers believe offers superior advantages over the competition. Warren discovered that simply being able to retain earnings free of the burden of having to spend them on maintaining current operations was not enough. The management of the business must have the ability to allocate retained earnings to new money-making ventures that also give high rates of return on invested capital. If no new ventures are available, these excellent businesses engage in stock buybacks. Warren also found that an excellent business, as a rule, will be conservatively financed and will have the freedom to adjust the prices of its product or services with inflation. And he believes that, for the patient investor, the market price will come to reflect the value of a company. Now that we know what the beast looks like, it's on to the next question. Where do you look for excellent businesses that have created conceptual toll bridges? There are basically three types of toll bridge businesses that produce excellent results. First, there are businesses that make products that wear out fast or are used up quickly. Businesses that have brand name appeal and that merchants have to carry or use to stay in business. Second, there are communication businesses that provide a repetitive service manufacturers must use to persuade the public to buy their products. Third, there are businesses that provide repetitive consumer services that people and businesses are consistently in need of. Let's examine each of these categories. Companies that manufacture brand-name products that wear out fast or are used up quickly and that merchants have to carry to be in business are, in effect, a kind of toll bridge. The consumer wants a particular brand-name product. If the merchant wants to earn a profit, he has to supply the consumer with that product. The catch is that there is only one manufacturer, only one bridge, and if you want that brand-name product, you have to pay the toll to that manufacturer. Let's make a trip down to the local 7-Eleven. As you stand at the door, can you predict what brand name products it has to carry to be in business? Well, it has to carry Coca-Cola, Marlboro cigarettes, Skoll chewing tobacco, Hershey's chocolate, Wrigley's chewing gum, and Doritos. Without these products, the owner is losing sales and money. 
the manufacturers of all of these products earn above average rates of return on equity. Name me some brand name products that every pharmacy has to carry. Crest toothpaste, Advil, Listerine, Tampex tampons, Bic pens, and Gillette razor blades. Without these products, the drugstore merchant is going to lose sales. And the manufacturers of all of these products earn high returns on equity. What brand name products must most clothing stores sell? Fruit of the Loom or Hanes underwear, and of course, the ubiquitous Levi's. Both earn their manufacturers high rates of return on equity. How about stores that sell running shoes? Does Nike ring a bell? Nike earns excellent returns on equity. How about the corner hardware store, WD-40 and GE light bulbs? Both of these manufacturers earn, you guessed it, above average returns on equity. We should take special note of restaurant chains that have created brand name products out of generic food. Restaurant chains, such as McDonald's, have taken the most ubiquitous of food, the hamburger, and turned it into a brand name product. McDonald's consistently earns above average rates of return on equity. Advertising by manufacturers ensures that customers will demand the advertised products and that merchants can't substitute a cheaper product on which they can get a fatter profit margin. The merchant becomes the gatekeeper to the toll bridge, with the manufacturer being guaranteed his profit. Since these products are consumed either on the spot or within a short period of time, the gatekeeper and the manufacturer can expect many profitable trips across the bridge. To Warren, the brand name consumer product is the kind of toll bridge business that he is interested in owning. The advertising industry itself has become so important to the sales process, it has become an excellent target for investment. Advertising has become the battleground on which manufacturers compete with one another, with huge consumer corporations spending hundreds of millions of dollars a year on getting their buy-our-product message to the potential consumer. These companies find that they must advertise or they run the risk that some competitor will sweep in and take over their coveted niche in the marketplace. Warren views advertising as a toll bridge between the potential consumer and the manufacturer, a bridge that profits the advertising agencies, magazine publishers, newspapers, and telecommunications networks of the world. When there were only three TV major networks, each one made a great deal of money. Seeing this, Warren invested heavily in capital cities and then ABC. Now that there are 67 channels to choose from, the networks don't do as well. They still make a ton of money, just not as much as when there were only three network toll bridges crossing the river. The same can be said of the newspaper business. A lone newspaper in a good-sized town can make excellent returns, but add a competitor and neither will do very well. This is what Warren experienced with the Buffalo Evening News. When there was a competitor in town, the paper was at best an average business. But since the competitor went out of business, it has been getting spectacular results. 
Warren has found that if there is only one newspaper toll bridge in town, it can jack its advertising rates to the moon and still not lose customers. Where else are the manufacturers and merchants going to cross the river to reach the consumer by print media? Advertising agencies that function on a world scale also enjoy high returns on equity by being in a unique position to profit from the huge consumer multinational companies that sell their products the world over. If one of these multinational companies wants to launch an advertising campaign, it has to use an advertising agency like Interpublic, the second largest advertising agency in the world. Interpublic becomes the toll bridge to the consumer that the multinational manufacturer must cross. This is the line of reasoning that Warren followed when he bought 17% of Interpublic. Businesses that provide repetitive consumer services that people and businesses are consistently in need of are also attractive to Warren Buffett. And the services provided can be performed by non-union workers, often with limited skills, who are hired on an as-needed basis. This odd segment of the business world includes such companies as ServiceMaster, which provides pest control, professional cleaning, maid service, and lawn care. Rollins, which runs Orkin, the world's largest pest and termite control service, and also provides security services to homes and businesses. We all know that at tax time, H&R Block is there to save our necks by filling in all those blank lines with the right tax numbers. All of these companies earn high rates of return on equity. This segment of Warren's toll bridge world also includes the credit card companies that he has invested in, such as American Express and Dean Witter Discover. Every time you use one of these companies' cards, it charges the merchant a fee or toll. If you fail to pay your credit card bill within your grace period, they get a chance to charge you a fee as well. Millions of little tolls taxed to each transaction adds up. Also, these strange credit card toll bridges don't need huge plants and equipment that suck up capital. The key to these kinds of companies is that they provide necessary services but require little in the way of capital expenditures or a highly paid educated workforce. Additionally, there is no such thing as product obsolescence. Once the management and infrastructure are in place, the company can hire and fire employees as the work demand dictates. You hire a person to work as a security guard for $8 an hour, give him a few hours of training, and then rent him out at $25 an hour. When there is no work, you don't have to pay him. Also, no one has to spend money and energy on upgrading or developing new products. The money these companies make goes directly into their pockets and can be spent on expanding operations, paying out dividends, or buying back stock. As long as the locusts keep coming, the termites keep eating, the thieves keep thieving, shoppers keep using credit cards, and governments keep taxing us, these companies will make money. Lots of it for a long time. The best way to start your search for the excellent toll bridge is to stand outside the supermarket, 7-Eleven or convenience store, or that drugstore we talked about, and try to list the brand name products 
the store must carry to be in business. This mental process is much better than thumbing through endless financial magazines and guides searching for the elusive company of your dreams. The products you come up with will lead you to the companies that are sitting on consumer jackpots of gold and getting high returns on equity and superior results for their owners. So get a pen and paper out and start guessing. One of Warren's prerequisites for an investment is that he understands what the company makes and how the product is used. He likes products that don't become obsolete because of some technical advancement. This means a lot of high-tech companies are ruled out. It doesn't mean that you can't invest in them using Warren's principles. It just means that if you don't understand what they do, you had better leave them alone. Where do you go after you found the name of a company that manufactures a product that you understand? You can start by looking at the product package to find out where it was manufactured. Then use the wonderful people at your long-distance telephone company. Call information and get the phone number of the company in question. It may just be that the company you've chosen is a subsidiary of another corporation. For instance, Haynes Hosiery is a part of Sara Lee. Yes, the same people who are making your cheesecake are also draping women's legs in hosiery. It may also be that the address on the label was for a manufacturing plant and not for the corporate offices. All right, you call the company and ask them for the phone number of the home office. You then call the home office. Tell the receptionist that you would like a copy of the company's annual report. The receptionist will more than likely connect you with somebody in shareholder relations. If that happens, tell the person in that department that you'd like a copy of the company's annual report. The person at the other end of the line will take your address and send you a copy free of charge. That's right, free of charge. The operator may tell you that the company is not publicly traded and doesn't issue an annual report to the public. This would be the case if you tried to get the annual report of, say, the Chanel Corporation, makers of that elegant fragrance Chanel Number no. 5. If that is the case, you would be out of luck and you should go on to your next company. If, however, the annual report is in the mail and you know that the company is publicly traded and where its home office is, and you know one or several of the products it makes, you are in a position to start using some of the resources that the financial and information sectors offer. Your first trip should be to the local library where you will find a set of books called the Guide to Business Periodicals. This amazing set of books contain a listing by page, week, month, and year of every publication in which the company in question was mentioned. The guide dates back about 30 years, so you should start with the most recent and look for stories about your company that were published in major business periodicals like Fortune, Business Week, Forbes, and Smart Money. Though there may be countless other listings, these will more than likely give you a good overview of the company and the industry it is in. It's really amazing when you think about it. You get some hotshot reporter writing about the business you are interested in. A reporter who perhaps talked to the competitors, interviewed the heads of the company, and gleaned the opinions of all the big-name analysts that cover the stock. And the really nice thing is, you don't have to pay a thing for this service, because after you get the listing for the story, 
you go to the periodical desk in the library, and the librarian will tell you how to retrieve the story. More than likely, the library will either have the magazine or will have a copy of it on microfilm, and all for free. University libraries are often a better source of information than the local city library, especially if the university has a business school. As you are reading these stories, remember to take notes. List the names of the competitors and anybody quoted. You do this because at some future date you may want to contact them and ask them a few questions. I know what you're thinking. How can I call these people and ask them questions? Just pick up the phone and dial. Tell them that you run a small fund. So what if your fund only has one investor? You. Tell them you are thinking about investing in the company. Nine times out of ten, they'll be happy to talk to you about the company. Now that you've learned a little about the company, you can go back to the periodical desk at the library and inquire about a source book of financial information called the Value Line Investment Survey. It covers 1,700 different companies and lists key financial figures dating back 15 years. It is a key tool in the game and one that Warren regularly uses. It is full of important figures such as the earnings per share and return on equity computations. I highly recommend it. Another source of information is Moody's Guide, which can also be found at your library. Standard and Poor's stock reports also follows selected companies. Note that Moody's, Standard and Poor's, and ValueLine offer subscriptions. If you are serious about investing, then they are worth yes, the investment. Look up the name of your company in ValueLine, and then turn to the page cited and read on. If you can't find the company listed in ValueLine, try Moody's. There is one for New York Stock Exchange stocks and one for over-the-counter or OTC stocks. If you can't find your company listed by any of these services, call the company again and try to get annual reports dating back as many years as possible. After you have read the stories you found through the Guide to Business periodicals and have assembled the financial figures for the company for at least the last seven years. You are ready to answer some key questions about the nature of the business, namely, is it a commodity type business or a consumer monopoly type business, or is it something in between? You can also answer a few questions about the management. Does it have shareholders' interest at heart, or is it out to foolishly spend the shareholders' money on low return projects? If things look enticing. You'll want to run the numbers for the return on equity and earnings growth over the last eight to ten years. You'll also want to calculate the company's value to you as an investor, using the equations we discussed earlier in the program. But remember, the earnings of a company must have strength, and the company's products have to be of a nature that will allow you to project the company's future earnings with a fair degree of comfort. Warren often refers to a circle of competence, using Bill Gates and his incredible company Microsoft as an example. He will say that Gates is probably the smartest and most creative manager in the business world today, and that the company is super. However, Warren says he's unable to predict with any comfort what the future earnings of the company will be, 
and therefore he can't calculate Microsoft's future value. If Warren is unable to calculate a company's future value, then the company will not fall in his circle of competence, and he will not consider it for investment. In Microsoft's case, he says that he just doesn't understand the business well enough to evaluate it, and if he can't evaluate it, he's not going to invest in it. But let's say the company you're considering is what you're looking for. At this point, you'd go on to the next step. The next step is really an adaptation of something the investment genius Philip Fisher wrote about in his enlightened 60s book, Common Stocks and Uncommon Profits. In it, he describes a process of investigation he calls the scuttlebutt approach. It is an investigative technique in which the prospective investor calls the competition and the customers of a business and asks them about the company in question. It's not unlike having coffee with an ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend of someone you are thinking about dating. Warren actually gets on the phone and calls the competition and asks what they think of a particular company. Or he may question someone he knows who has knowledge about a particular area of business. If you happen to be around Warren after he's gotten tanked up on four or five Coca-Colas, he may regale you with some of his early scuttlebutt escapades from his days at the Columbia School of Business. My favorite is when Warren finds out that his favorite professor, none other than Benjamin Graham, is chairman of an insurance company called Government Employees Insurance Company, GEICO. Young Warren, upon learning this, ventured over to the Columbia Library, looked up GEICO, and discovered that the company was located in Washington, D.C., so one Saturday, Warren hopped on a train and went down to Washington, D.C., arriving at Geico's headquarters at about 11 o'clock in the morning. Upon finding the doors closed, he beat on the front door until a janitor answered. Warren asked the janitor in the building whom he could talk to about the company. The janitor, taking pity, told him a guy on the sixth floor might be able to help him. So Warren walked in, marched up to the sixth floor, and found none other than Lorimar Davidson, Geico's chief investment officer, who later would become CEO. Davidson, flattered and impressed with Warren's desire to know about the company, spent four hours with him that day explaining the insurance business and how Geico worked. And Warren became totally enamored with the company. As we noted, he later added Geico to his circle of competence and over the next 40 years made over $1.7 on a $45 million investment in the company. Do the scuttlebutt? Yes. A service that investment houses can provide you with is a list of all the institutions that own a particular stock. I have found it amazingly informative to call up those institutions and ask to talk to the analyst who follows the company I'm interested in. I tell him I run a small investment fund and that I'm thinking about adding the company in question to my portfolio. I have yet to have an analyst turn me away. Analysts, as a lot, are a very talkative group, and invariably they will expound on the factors that made them interested in buying the stock. Sometimes you'll find out why they wish they hadn't bought the stock. But remember, I've already done my homework on the company, and I can talk intelligently about the business and ask pointed, timely questions. Another thing I like to do is go into a store that is selling the products of a business I'm thinking about buying. I'll ask the store manager how that particular product is selling. 
When Philip Morris dropped the price of Marlboros to win back sales that were being lost to the bargain brands, I started asking convenient shop clerks if the drop in price of Marlboros had stimulated sales. All said that it had. Weeks before the press reported to the public that the drop in sales price was stimulating sales and allowing Philip Morris to regain the market share, I already knew that their strategy was working. Warren does the scuttlebutt. Philip Fisher does the scuttlebutt. David, my co-author, and I do the scuttlebutt, and so can you. Be creative and have fun. The worst thing that will happen is someone won't answer your question. The best thing that you may end up with is a friend. Anybody can do these things. You don't need an MBA, and you don't need to work for a big Wall Street investment house. All you need to do is spend some time in the library reading and making a few phone calls. Don't be shy. After all, it is your money, and if you are not willing to do at least a little work on your investment decisions, then it probably won't be your money for very long.